We continue with the opinion of the court in Andy Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts, Inc., v. Goldsmith. Beginning with Part 2, Section A2. The fair use provision, and the first factor in particular, requires an analysis of the specific use of a copyrighted work that is alleged to be an infringement. The same copying may be fair when used for one purpose, but not another. Here, Goldsmith's copyrighted photograph has been used in multiple ways. After Goldsmith licensed the photograph to Vanity Fair to serve as an artist reference, Warhol used the photograph to create the Vanity Fair illustration and the other print series works. Vanity Fair then used the photograph, pursuant to the license, when it published Warhol's illustration in 1984. Finally, AWF used the photograph when it licensed an image of Warhol's orange prints to Condé Nast in 2016. Only that last use, however, AWF's commercial licensing of orange prints to Condé Nast, is alleged to be infringing. We limit our analysis accordingly. In particular, the court expresses no opinion as to the creation display, or sale of any of the original print series works. A typical use of a celebrity photograph is to accompany stories about the celebrity, often in magazines. For example, Goldsmith licensed her photographs of prints to illustrate stories about prints in magazines such as Newsweek, Vanity Fair, and People. She even licensed her photographs for that purpose after Prince died in 2016. A photographer may also license her creative work to serve as a reference for an artist, like Goldsmith did in 1984 when Vanity Fair wanted an image of Prince created by Warhol to illustrate an article about Prince. As noted by the Court of Appeals, Goldsmith introduced uncontroverted evidence that photographers generally license others to create stylized derivatives of their work in the vein of the print series. In fact, Warhol himself paid to license photographs for some of his artistic renditions. Such licenses for photographs or derivatives of them are how photographers like Goldsmith make a living. They provide an economic incentive to create original works, which is the goal of copyright. In 2016, AWF licensed an image of orange prints to Condé Nast to appear on the cover of a commemorative edition magazine about prints. The edition, titled The Genius of Prints, celebrates the life and work of Prince Rogers Nelson. It is undisputed here that the edition is devoted to prints. In addition to AWF's image on the cover, the magazine contains numerous concert and studio photographs of prints. In that context, the purpose of the image is substantially the same as that of Goldsmith's photograph. Both are portraits of prints used in magazines to illustrate stories about prints. Such environments are not distinct and different. AWF's licensing of the orange prints image thus superseded the objects, 
i.e. shared the objectives, of Goldsmith's photograph, even if the two were not perfect substitutes. The use also is of a commercial nature. Just as Goldsmith licensed her photograph to Vanity Fair for $400, AWF licensed Orange Prince to Condé Nast for $10,000. The undisputed commercial character of AWF's use, though not dispositive, tends to weigh against a finding of fair use. Taken together, these two elements, that Goldsmith's photograph and AWF's 2016 licensing of orange prints, share substantially the same purpose, and that AWF's use of Goldsmith's photo was of a commercial nature, counsel against fair use, absent some other justification for copying. That is, although a use's transformativeness may outweigh its commercial character, here, both elements point in the same direction. The foregoing does not mean, however, that derivative works borrowing heavily from an original cannot be fair uses. In Google, the court suggested that an artistic painting might, for example, fall within the scope of a fair use even though it precisely replicates a copyrighted advertising logo, to make a comment about consumerism. That suggestion refers to Warhol's works that incorporate advertising logos, such as the Campbell's Soup Cans series. Not all of Warhol's works, nor all uses of them, give rise to the same fair use analysis. In fact, Soup Cans well illustrates the distinction drawn here. The purpose of Campbell's logo is to advertise soup. Warhol's canvases do not share that purpose. Rather, the Soup Cans series uses Campbell's copyrighted work for an artistic commentary on consumerism, a purpose that is orthogonal to advertising soup. The use, therefore, does not supersede the objects of the advertising logo. Moreover, a further justification for Warhol's use of Campbell's logo is apparent. His Soup Cans series targets the logo. That is, the original copyrighted work is, at least in part, the object of Warhol's commentary. It is the very nature of Campbell's copyrighted logo— well-known to the public, designed to be reproduced, and a symbol of an everyday item for mass consumption, that enables the commentary. Hence, the use of the copyrighted work not only serves a completely different purpose, to comment on consumerism rather than to advertise soup, it also conjures up the original work to shed light on the work itself, not just the subject of the work. Here, by contrast, AWF's use of Goldsmith's photograph does not target the photograph, nor has AWF offered another compelling justification for the use. Section B. AWF contends, however, that the purpose and character of its use of Goldsmith's photograph weighs in favor of fair use because Warhol's silkscreen image of the photograph, like the Campbell's Soup Cans series, has a new meaning or message. 
The district court, for example, understood the Prince series works to portray Prince as an iconic, larger-than-life figure. AWF also asserts that the works are a comment on celebrity. In particular, Warhol's Prince series conveys the dehumanizing nature of celebrity. According to AWF, that new meaning or message, which the Court of Appeals ignored, makes the use transformative in the fair use sense. We disagree. 1. Campbell did describe a transformative use as one that alters the first work with new expression, meaning, or message. That description paraphrased Judge Laval's Law Review article, which referred to new information, new aesthetics, new insights, and understandings. But Campbell cannot be read to mean that Section 1071 weighs in favor of any use that adds some new expression, meaning, or message. Otherwise, transformative use would swallow the copyright owner's exclusive right to prepare derivative works. Many derivative works, including musical arrangements, film and stage adaptations, sequels, spin-offs, and others that recast, transform, or adapt the original, add new expression, meaning, or message, or provide new information, new aesthetics, new insights, and understandings. That is an intractable problem for AWF's interpretation of transformative use. The first fair use factor would not weigh in favor of a commercial remix of Prince's Purple Rain just because the remix added new expression or had a different aesthetic. A film or musical adaptation, like that of Alice Walker's The Color Purple, might win awards for its significant creative contribution, alter the meaning of a classic novel, and add important new expression, such as images, performances, original music, and lyrics. But that does not in itself dispense with the need for licensing. Campbell is again instructive. Two Life Crew's version of Orbison's song easily conveyed a new meaning or message. It also had a different aesthetic. Yet the court went further, examining whether and to what extent Two Life Crew's song had the parodic purpose of commenting on the original or criticizing it. Parody is, of course, a kind of message. Moreover, the court considered what the words of the songs might have meant to determine whether parody reasonably could be perceived. But new meaning or message was not sufficient. If it had been, the court could have made quick work of the first fair use factor. Instead, meaning or message was simply relevant to whether the new use served a purpose distinct from the original, or instead superseded its objects. That was, and is, the central question under the first factor. The dissent commits the same interpretive error as AWF. It focuses on Campbell's paraphrase, yet ignores the rest of that decision's careful reasoning. Indeed, upon reading the dissent, someone might be surprised to learn that Campbell was about parody at all. 
had expert testimony confirmed the obvious fact that two live crews, Pretty Woman, differed in aesthetics and meaning from Orbison's original, that would have been the end of the dissent's analysis. Not the courts, however. Campbell was the culmination of a long line of cases and scholarship about parody's claim to fairness in borrowing. For purposes of copyright law, the court explained, the heart of any parodist's claim to quote from existing material is the use of some elements of a prior author's composition to create a new one that, at least in part, comments on that author's works. Campbell thus drew a nuanced distinction between parody and satire. While parody cannot function unless it conjures up the original, satire can stand on its own two feet and so requires justification for borrowing. The objective meaning or message of Two Live Crew's song was relevant to this inquiry into the reasons for copying, but any new expression, meaning, or message was not the test. What role meaning or message played in the Court of Appeals analysis here is not entirely clear. The court correctly rejected the idea that any secondary work that adds a new aesthetic or new expression to its source material is necessarily transformative. It also appeared correctly to accept that meaning or message is relevant to, but not dispositive of, purpose. Elsewhere, however, the Court of Appeals stated that the district judge should not assume the role of art critic and seek to ascertain the intent behind or meaning of the works at issue. That statement is correct in part. A court should not attempt to evaluate the artistic significance of a particular work, nor does the subjective intent of the user or the subjective interpretation of a court, determine the purpose of the use. But the meaning of a secondary work, as reasonably can be perceived, should be considered to the extent necessary to determine whether the purpose of the use is distinct from the original, for instance, because the use comments on, criticizes, or provides otherwise available information about the original. 2. The district court determined that the print series works can reasonably be perceived to have transformed prints from a vulnerable, uncomfortable person to an iconic, larger-than-life figure. To make that determination, the district court relied in part on testimony by Goldsmith that her photographs of prints show that he is not a comfortable person and that he is a vulnerable human being. An expert on Warhol, meanwhile, testified that the print series works depict prints as a kind of icon or totem of something, a mask-like simulacrum of his actual existence. The Court of Appeals noted correctly that whether a work is transformative cannot turn merely on the stated or perceived intent of the artist or the meaning or impression that a critic, or for that matter a judge, draws from the work. Otherwise, the law may well recognize any alteration as transformative. 
whether the purpose and character of a use weighs in favor of fair use is instead an objective inquiry into what use was made, i.e., what the user does with the original work. Granting the district court's conclusion that orange prints reasonably can be perceived to portray prints as iconic, whereas Goldsmith's portrayal is photorealistic, that difference must be evaluated in the context of the specific use at issue. The use is AWF's commercial licensing of orange prints to appear on the cover of Condé Nast's special commemorative edition. The purpose of that use is still to illustrate a magazine about prints with a portrait of prints. Although the purpose could be more specifically described as illustrating a magazine about prints with a portrait of prints, one that portrays prints somewhat differently from Goldsmith's photograph, yet has no critical bearing on her photograph, that degree of difference is not enough for the first factor to favor AWF, given the specific context of the use. To hold otherwise would potentially authorize a range of commercial copying of photographs to be used for purposes that are substantially the same as those of the originals. As long as the user somehow portrays the subject of the photograph differently, he could make modest alterations to the original, sell it to an outlet to accompany a story about the subject, and claim transformative use. Many photographs will be open to various interpretations. A subject as open to interpretation as the human face, for example, reasonably can be perceived as conveying several possible meanings. The application of an artist's characteristic style to bring out a particular meaning that was available in the photograph is less likely to constitute a further purpose, as Campbell used the term. AWF asserts another, albeit related, purpose, which is to comment on the dehumanizing nature and effects of celebrity. No doubt, many of Warhol's works, and particularly his uses of repeated images, can be perceived as depicting celebrities as commodities. But again, even if such commentary is perceptible on the cover of Condé Nast's tribute, to Prince Rogers Nelson, on the occasion of the man's death. AWF has a problem. The asserted commentary is at Campbell's lowest ebb. Because it has no critical bearing on Goldsmith's photograph, the commentary's claim to fairness in borrowing from her work diminishes accordingly, if it does not vanish. The commercial nature of the use, on the other hand, looms larger. Here, the circumstances of AWF's 2016 licensing outweigh its diminished claim to fairness in copying under the first factor. Like satire that does not target an original work, AWF's asserted commentary can stand on its own two feet, and so requires justification for the very act of borrowing. Moreover, because AWF's commercial use of Goldsmith's photograph to illustrate a magazine about prints is so similar to the photograph's typical use, a particularly compelling justification is needed. Yet, AWF offers no independent justification 
let alone a compelling one, for copying the photograph, other than to convey a new meaning or message. As explained, that alone is not enough for the first factor to favor fair use. Copying might have been helpful to convey a new meaning or message. It often is. But that does not suffice under the first factor, nor does it distinguish AWF from a long list of would-be fair users. A musician who finds it helpful to sample another artist's song to make his own. A playwright who finds it helpful to adapt a novel. Or a filmmaker who would prefer to create a sequel or spin-off, to name just a few. As Judge Laval has explained, a secondary author is not necessarily at liberty to make wholesale takings of the original author's expression merely because of how well the original author's expression would convey the secondary author's different message. 3. The dissent would rather not debate these finer points. It offers no theory of the relationship between transformative uses of original works and derivative works that transform originals. No reason why AWF was justified in using Goldsmith's original work in this specific instance, and no limiting principle for its apparent position that any use that is creative prevails under the first fair use factor. Instead, the dissent makes the simple and obvious point that restrictions on copying can inhibit follow-on works. Nothing comes from nothing, the dissent observes. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in the copyright statute, there must be an escape valve to create something good. If AWF must pay Goldsmith to use her creation, the dissent claims, this will stifle creativity of every sort thwart the expression of new ideas and the attainment of new knowledge, and make our world poorer. These claims will not age well. It will not impoverish our world to require AWF to pay Goldsmith a fraction of the proceeds from its reuse of her copyrighted work. Recall, payments like these are incentives for artists to create original works in the first place, nor will the court's decision, which is consistent with long-standing principles of fair use, snuff out the light of Western civilization, returning us to the dark ages of a world without Titian, Shakespeare, or Richard Rogers. The dissent goes on at length about the basic premise that copyright, like other forms of intellectual property, involves a trade-off between stimulating innovative activity, on the one hand, and allowing follow-on innovation on the other. This theme will be familiar to any student of copyright law. In tracing the history of Renaissance painting, however, the dissent loses sight of the statute and this court's cases. The Lives of the Artists undoubtedly makes for livelier reading than the U.S. Code or the U.S. Reports, but as a court, we do not have that luxury. The dissent thus misses the forest for a tree. Its single-minded focus on the value of copying ignores the value of original works. 
it ignores the statute's focus on the specific use alleged to be infringing. It waves away the statute's concern for derivative works. It fails to appreciate Campbell's nuance. And it disregards this court's repeated emphasis on justification. The result of these omissions is an account of fair use that is unbalanced in theory and perhaps relatedly in tone. The dissent's conclusion that whenever a use adds new meaning or message or constitutes creative progress in the opinion of a critic or judge, the first fair use factor weighs in its favor, does not follow from its basic premise. Fair use instead strikes a balance between original works and secondary uses, based in part on objective indicia of the use's purpose and character, including whether the use is commercial and, importantly, the reasons for copying. Finally, copyright law is replete with escape valves. The idea-expression distinction, the general rule that facts may not receive protection, the requirement of originality, the legal standard for actionable copying, the limited duration of copyright, and, yes, the defense of fair use, including all its factors, such as whether the amount taken is reasonable in relation to the purpose of the use. These doctrines, and others, provide ample space for artists and other creators to use existing materials to make valuable new works. They account for most, if not all, of the examples given by the dissent, as well as the dissent's own copying, and the court's too. If the last century of American art, literature, music, and film is any indication, the existing copyright law, of which today's opinion is a continuation, is a powerful engine of creativity. Part 3 Lynn Goldsmith's original works, like those of other photographers, are entitled to copyright protection, even against famous artists. Such protection includes the right to prepare derivative works that transform the original. The use of a copyrighted work may nevertheless be fair if, among other things, the use has a purpose and character that is sufficiently distinct from the original. In this case, however, Goldsmith's original photograph of Prince and AWF's copying use of that photograph in an image licensed to a special edition magazine devoted to Prince share substantially the same purpose, and the use is of a commercial nature. AWF has offered no other persuasive justification for its unauthorized use of the photograph. Therefore, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of commercial nature or is for non-profit educational purposes, weighs in Goldsmith's favor. The court has cautioned that the four statutory fair use factors may not be treated in isolation, one from another. All are to be explored, and the results weighed together in light of the purposes of copyright. AWF does not challenge that the Court of Appeals determinations that the second factor, the nature of the copyrighted work, third factor, the amount and substantiality, of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, 
and fourth factor, the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work, all favor Goldsmith. Because this court agrees with the Court of Appeals that the first factor likewise favors her, the judgment of the Court of Appeals is affirmed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.